This is Future Heist, conversations with people making change. My name is Rena Neve Smith. So I'm Taban Shiresh, I'm um, Kurdish from Northern Iraq. I'm a genocide survivor and founder of the Lotus Lounge, which is a women and girls non-profit. I think my personal history and personal story, the experience of escaping the genocide, fleeing, being in prison, um, and going through all of that definitely pushed me to go back in August 2014. And in August 2014, ISIS had gone into um, Iraq and there was another genocide happening. So I was 32 and I witnessed two genocides in my lifetime. So I thought, this is surreal. And I said, stayed out there for 15 months and worked for a local foundation. And we, my first day was literally on a helicopter delivering aid and rescuing people trapped on Mount Sinjar and they were hemmed by ISIS. Um, that was an eye-opening experience and from that day we built schools, we built camps, we did so many distributions and lots of frontline work and I worked very closely with the women and girls that were impacted by the conflict. So when I came back in 15 months to London it just felt so surreal. I think it took me three months to readjust back to normal life. Um, but I knew that I wanted to do something even if I was here. So I thought, well, I could be a bridge between the two worlds. And I decided to set up the Lotus Flower, but niche it to women and girls impacted by conflict and displacement because A, that's where my personal background's from. And also professionally, that's what I've experienced for the last 15 months on the ground. And there was a massive need for it. So I set it up for that reason. And I, I actually set it up knowing why before knowing how I'm going to do anything, which was completely surreal. I think everyone's mm. like, Tavan, you crazy. Do you need to have a full plan? Like, no, I know why I'm doing this. Yeah. I've come across that, that idea before, though, like in life in general, that if you have... If you really want to do something, you will find a way to do it. Like, if the desire is there, the drive is there then you're, even if you don't know how to sort some things out, you'll you'll find out along the way. I think that's definitely it, especially when you're so passionate and confident that you know why you're doing it and you're doing it for the right reasons and you've got no doubts whatsoever. You actually forget about how to do stuff because the how will come. You will find a solution. You'll f figure out a way of making it happen. And actually, I started it in my living room with no money whatsoever, and I'm not exactly rich, so I don't have loads of money to invest into it myself. Um, but the supporters that I reached out to, we actually f at first just went, we want to start one project, we've done our interviews, we've done our assessment, this is what's needed and this is what they want. Um, we need X amount to help us make it happen. And two donors said, well, if you raise this, then we'll match that. And that's how it started. And then it's kind of spinballed into three centres now and helping 3,000 women fall over. Yeah, that's absolutely incredible. So, yeah. yeah, as long as you know the why, it'll yeah. keep you going. Yeah, this is really interesting. Definitely. Um, and so tell me about your family background then. So you already experienced a genocide like as a child. Yeah, so I, 
my father was a poet and a Peshmerga, which is a freedom fighter. And under Saddam Hussein's era, Saddam didn't want any Kurds to be active um, or any Kurds that were active as part of protecting the Kurdish identity. And there was a massive movement going on, which my dad was part of. Um, and he was always away. So he was always away defending the cause or being part of the cause. And so my mum looked after us a lot. And the way they would capture the men was to capture the families. And one day they took my mother and myself and my dad's parents to prison. Um, they took them to a first prison where they interrogated them to try and get information out of them. And that's how they would try and get the men down. And they didn't give anything away. So after that, we were taken to a second prison, which was like an ethnic prison. Um, it was only Kurds. You had the men in one prison and the women and girl, the women and children in a separate prison. So we were there for about two weeks. And after two weeks, they called out some family names and our names were on that list. And we were meant to be buried alive. But I was so young, I didn't know. Um, the adults knew. And the only way they knew is when we went out to the buses, there were two diggers in front of the buses. And so they knew what the diggers were for. Um, and at that time, Saddam Hussein was carrying out unbelievable killings, like in really, really torturous ways. You know, they put people in uh, tree mincers. Um, they'd electrocute people. Uh, my grandfather was electrocuted in prison. Um, and burying people alive was also another form of torture and death because the way they would do it was they'd dig up the holes in front of you, they'd put everyone in alive, and then they would shovel in soil slowly. So you're going through a very slow death. Um, so we were meant to go through that. Um, we had a miraculous escape. And at that time you had Kurds working for Saddam Hussein, but we're actually working for Kurds too. Um, and you had vice versa, so we've experienced both. And in this particular case, the buses stopped and there was some sort of deal that was made outside. And to this day, we don't even know how or what happened. Um, and then the buses carried on, but then they stopped again and the doors were opened and it was two Kurdish men. And they said, you need to disappear and pretend as if you're dead. We're Kurdish, we're not going to kill you. So they were clearly there to rescue us. Um, but what it meant was that everyone had to literally disappear and pretend as if we were dead because you had the death sentence on us. And the ones that didn't listen were caught later on and died on the spot, or killed on the spot. Um, we went into hiding. We went into hiding in the south of Iraq for about three months and my mum put her foot down and said, we need to get out of this country. I can't kill myself or my kids for you. Anyway, to cut a long story short, it took us about 12 months to flee from village to village. And this was during the Iran and Iraq war as well. Mm -hmm. And we eventually reached Iran to safety and my dad was meant to follow. And he, he, Saddam Hussein had hired a husband and wife to poison a group of men and he was included in that group. And they did, so they put poison in the yogurt drink that we've got. And so the men that drank it there on the spot died on the spot and they knew that they'd been poisoned so my father and two other men were critically poisoned and so their friends took them to the Iranian border smuggled them into Iran and then Amnesty International picked up on the story and they flew them to the UK for medical treatment so two to the UK and one to France and that's how we ended up here so we followed a year later when he survived mm -hmm.
and that's yeah that's my childhood <laughs> wow that's just isn't it? like yeah an incredible and it's surreal really, yeah and a really frightening horrible yeah I, I, thing to have gone through I think when I went back in August 2014 it made the memories a lot stronger because you start witnessing things as an adult that you might have experienced as a child and so you get flashbacks wow yeah um that was really strange for me I think when we arrived in the UK we ended up having a very normal life mm-hmm. um I went to school I mean you had incidents of you know settling into the UK we arrived as refugees mm-hmm. um but then eventually went to school went to university ended up working in the city and when I was working in the city that's when I left to go back to Kurdistan August 2014 that I thought wow yeah I can do it mm-hmm. and I handed in my notice and left yeah that's incredible <laughs> yeah and and totally awesome that he kind of like recognised that in you and like was unselfish about you know completely I to this day I'm grateful mm-hmm. and for him to see what I've turned it into mm-hmm. is such a journey because yeah. it's gone from me sitting in my corner desk mm-hmm. yeah. to what's happening now yeah. and so I think he's really really proud when he looks at it from afar mm-hmm. um, so that's yeah yeah it's quite special absolutely and then your family as well so do you have brothers and sisters or I've got an older brother um, and a younger brother and sister mm-hmm. and the younger ones were born here right. so I went through most of what we went through with my older brother mm-hmm. um, his experience is slightly different in that when I was taken to prison he was hidden right so he saw his mother and sister being taken away by soldiers and then he never saw us for mm-hmm. several months mm-hmm. so that was I think very traumatising for somebody to witness um, yeah and then we reunited later on and went on the journeys together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what was your kind of family's reaction? Your, I mean, you know, when you sort of said that you wanted to, like, leave this corner desk and go into, like, you know, start start on this journey, yeah. what was what was their reaction? Well, they were a little bit... I've got a son, mm-hmm. so I'm a single mum. And at that time, I had a very stable, steady job. Um I was able to look after my son properly and so for them to hear that I'm leaving everything and I'm taking him with me mm-hmm. was really really daunting and I actually had a lot of them say maybe you shouldn't be doing this but actually because it's back home mm-hmm. it's a place that they know mm-hmm. there was a sense of pride and proudness as well so they were torn between the two torn between worried about me going back but also proud at the same time but me being quite headstrong I just did it anyway yeah definitely and you so you took your son with you how old was your son at the time I think he just turned 12 so it was the first year in secondary school um and he's heard stories of me being in prison as a child he can't believe it Mm -hmm. and I just thought actually I prefer him to have some life experience and different forms of education and to be exposed to different things and that for me was more important than for him to go through year seven. I mean, most parents wouldn't agree with me, mm-hmm. but that's what I decided. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's the best thing ever. It's made him a really well-rounded, emotionally intelligent, empathetic child. Yeah. Um, so I, I would do it over again. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it has. I mean, you know, I think that traveling and going and doing new things anyway, you're right, is totally a form of education and... Completely. Um, 
and to go back to like the country where his family have been through so much and you've been through so much is like definitely gonna he he was in the safe part mm. so Erbil despite ISIS being half an hour away mm-hmm. was actually really safe um he loved it mm-hmm. I mean for him it's he absolutely loved it he had the freedom to go and see family cousins um but then I think after a year he said I'd like to go back to London now yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing um and so you still have family there then? I've got lots of extended family mm-hmm. back there, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, my immediate family are here, mm-hmm. although we all travel back very regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, but most of them are still there, yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Um, and then, so tell me about setting up Lotus Flower then. What was the, how was the kind of first steps? You'd gone and done this year in Denmark. Um, so I went... I actually told my cousin's um, wife, who does branding, and and she she actually forced me. She said, "Well, I'm doing your branding. You've got three weeks to do your things." <laughs> Amazing. I thought, okay, well, that's great. And then yeah. I've got the pressure to do it, mm-hmm. and I'd already picked who was going to work for us on the ground, and she'd started looking at doing assessments and finding out what projects are actually needed. Because I didn't want to impose projects on them. I wanted them to choose. And so they all came back. We did it around 200 women interview. And they all came back and said, yeah, we know what's happened to us. has happened to us. And these are the Yazidi women that have been raped, sold on as sex slaves. You know, they've watched family members being killed in front of them. And they all said, we just want to try and rebuild our lives. Um, our husbands are dead now. We need some way of supporting our kids can you please teach us a skill that will earn us an income so we said okay great what kind of skill do you want to learn and they came back with sewing and for for them sewing is great in that context because it enables them to look after their children and also learn a skill that is transferable to anywhere so if they go back to their homes in five years time four years time whenever or relocate to any country, it's a skill that they can take with them. And so I managed to get fundraise the seed funding to get that project going. And because we had the centre to do it in, we started a volunteering programme for a year. Mm-hmm. So we got volunteers or skilled people from within the camp to run training sessions. And we had adult literacy, English, computer course, although so many courses we did. And that just escalated and grew and grew and we realised that all the services are needed. Mm-hmm. So the second year f- after that for me was fundraising to keep those projects going and everything that all the projects that we've chosen are projects that the women and girls want and just imagine yourself being in a camp. You know, the boys and the men have the freedom to go outside of the camp. They've got the freedom to go to the restaurant in the camp if there is one, or the cafe. They've got the freedom to roam around, but the boy, the women and girls are restricted, and it's like a cultural issue where sometimes they're restricted on what they can and can't do. They can go to a family member or friend's cabin, but realistically that's as far as they can go. They can't really go out of the camp. There's nothing for them to do. So we realised that creating a safe social space for women and girls is so needed, it's desperately needed, because it gives them an excuse to come out, learn something, socialise, and the families and the community aren't threatened by it because it's a safe social space for women. 
So we realised this is working. And then we evolved that into having pillars for our projects and they're all aligned to SDG goals. So education, livelihoods, mental health and well-being, um, human rights, peace building and gender equality. So what we do is we've, we've kind of created a model where we've got the safe social space, which is the centre, and then we've got these pillars and then we choose projects under those pillars. But those projects could change from centre to centre because another centre might want something different because the women want something different. Um, and it's really, really working. So we've got lots of projects. We've got adult literacy, English and beginners, um, computer, we've just introduced Boxing Sisters, which is phenomenal. We're going to get Kathy Brown, who's a UK ex-professional boxer, to go out and train some of the women to be instructors. So we will hire them for them to run the training sessions. Um, sewing Sisters, Baking Sisters, which is, we teach them to bake, but like baking to a commercial standard and they'll have a coffee shop where they can sell the goods and that'll be an income for them. And we've now just got um, support from a renowned chef who will be on Netflix in March, on Chef's Table. Um, and she wants to start supporting um, cafes, to, so to run cafes. And actually it's, it's so desperately needed because there isn't really a social restaurant cafe for women and girls. So to have one especially for them and run by them is a great way to A, get them all together, but also an income generating project and bring food back into it. Because there's this whole thing about food and displacement. Mm. Once you're displaced, food in certain cultures, especially food is a massive thing that keeps the family together and mm -hmm. keeps your heritage and your traditions together. But when, when you're displaced, all those ingredients, all those traditional ways of doing stuff goes. Um, and so the idea of this cafe is to try and bring that back to them and give them the power to take that back. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. And yeah, <coughs> food's kind of absolutely a part of cultural identity, isn't it? And so this is also, I imagine that if you're living in a camp, your sense of identity and sense of confidence will really need building up and like, and then something to... Completely. <clears throat> Well, yeah, it, get, so. it gets taken away from you mm -hmm. when you're in conflict um, you're automatically stripped away your identity when you're displaced you're stripped away from it on another level and you're almost living by everyone, what everyone else is naming you as um, you know the, the term refugees there's no other term to replace it, but actually refugees don't like being called refugees. Mm. I remember I hated being called it because I was so... It would just knock me back and make me feel really, really self-conscious. You know, it's, it's a really, really weird thing, but it does impact people. So they don't want the labels. And so for us, the way we try and do it is we give them that freedom and we try and give them tools to rebuild their identity the way they want it rebuilt um the whole concept of the boxing sisters you know there's something completely unheard of in the region but some of the women are absolutely loving it and they're taking on this new identity and actually really embracing it um so it's it's about the way i see it is to we're just providing the tools to give them what they want so they can choose what they want mm -hmm. um i think that's really important Massively. I think that's so interesting what you've just said, especially because like 
obviously, um, you know, in the last few months and years, then refugees have really been in the headlines here in the UK and kind of, I mean, there was that story recently about the boy who was attacked and it was videoed and, um, and a whole, there was an outpouring of support from the community, but there was also, you know, that hasn't come from nowhere and, and there is obviously anti-refugee like feeling, um, yeah. across Europe, but in the UK as well. Um, and yeah, that, that, the whole thing about being refugees, I think there's a real kind of status in society thing, isn't it? It's like that thing of belonging to, and belonging to the, to the society that you're in and, and reminding somebody that they are other. And there's an othering that goes on with people like refugees. I think that's, I think that's the biggest issue with the term refugees is that you, you automatically place somebody in the other. Um, whereas when I was younger, I just remember just wanting to be known as the band from Kurdistan. <laughs> um, and I think it's still very valid, a lot of people that I speak to. Sadly, we don't have a replacement term, so if anyone has any suggestions for terms, yeah. that would be amazing. <laughs> um, but a lot of people do feel that, and I know that for a fact because not only am I embedded in the community and we hear it and we talk it, but I felt it and mm -hmm. experienced it. Um, you feel like you're very belittled with that word. Um, and actually, the, the sense of other and the fear or the hate that could come with that is out of fear. It really is out of fear because you take that term away and you put people together and you start getting them to talk, you, you, you'll be shocked at how much they start connecting. Um, so I think the term doesn't help because it creates a sense of other and it gives the hater a reason or a term to kind of go, okay, this is the reason, these are the people that are taking my things. Or I mean, I had a particular incident in primary school um, when I was 10. I, when we arrived, we couldn't speak English very well, but I did know a few words here and there. And there was this child that turned around and said, your dad, Saddam Hussein. And that, it was a dinner line and I'm, think she was just being mean because kids are sometimes mean um I pushed her because I couldn't verbalize anything I couldn't say it and the teacher came over and told me off because I pushed her and I got sent to the back of the line and so I, I just remember that standing there and just crying but not being able to explain anything to the teacher or explain what had happened and from that moment, that particular incident stopped me talking about anything with my friends in secondary school and, you know, further on in life. And I realised that that one incident had such a massive impact on me because I was embarrassed to share anything. So the moment you start putting people in that box of other, it, it naturally just creates tension amongst other people. Um, I think education is a massive, massive part. We, I try and do a lot going into schools and explaining what we do um but I think education is key you know the media has a massive influence on the way people think the way that young people think you know thankfully mm -hmm. my son knows everything so he he wouldn't fall in that category but you know I'm sure there would be lots of people his age group that wouldn't know anything more um and would I blame them no because that's what they've been shown you know that's all they've been educated with mm -hmm. Uh, whereas my son's friends, they all know everything about what we do and who we help. And I think education plays a massive part and the media's role and responsibility in that is also big. Yeah, absolutely.
you know, that news story recently about the refugee um, boy who was kind of attacked by his classmates, what always strikes me about stories like that is the sense that, like, those kids will not know anything about that boy and, like, what he's actually been through. Probably, like you say, because when kids are kids, they don't tend to talk about that kind of stuff anyway. But there is just a massive kind of lack of understanding that goes right through from, like, you know, from the playground right through to, like, the media and stuff and the way these issues are kind of represented. And it's always kind of the the people who come here from other countries, especially if they've had, like, a they've been fleeing for a reason, have usually been through, like, incredibly traumatic terrifying and challenging kind of situations that most people in here wouldn't be able to you know comprehend basically yeah. um and yeah and I, th I think you're right I think the media it's and it's interesting um you know when the um Manchester attacks happened at the Ariana Grande concert and I remember seeing when there's an incident like that and there'll be the each victim that will become known to the general public through the media and who they were and you know their hopes and dreams especially because like that concept particularly there was a, like a lot of young people and that's exactly right and that you know that's the way it should be but when you compare that to the way say um an attack on a wedding in Pakistan by a drone is kind of reported it's like this thing happened move on and they don't talk about you know like you hear you hear that a lot about um about these attacks it'll be things like weddings and it'll be you know family gatherings mm. and there's no sense of like the you can see the way it's reported in the media there's not a sense of like who these people were like their hopes and dreams you know what i mean yeah. it's trying to, it's they're reduced to a headline and there's a kind of a it goes on on many levels basically it's really kind of embedded in the way that we see the world i think so i think definitely it's you know i i saw a massive massive difference when i was there when isis was in the region the headlines were packed absolutely packed with what was going on in the region um, and how it was impacting communities there were so many stories about women and now like two years on you, you've still got 2.6 million people displaced in that region you've still got issues that need to be resolved um, you've still got the, the stories of the women but the media's moved on um, and it's always it feels like it's always the next story and it's really sad and the impact of that I think has been that people have become a little bit desensitized by it because you tend to see something and you go oh my gosh that's and then you move on and then you move on so the media I think has a massive responsibility and it's, it's played a big part in the way people are seen yeah absolutely and I think I think you're totally right. I think I remember when it was the um, when Grenfell happened as well. I remember thinking about it then too. The way that we're kind of saturated with all this information until you're almost sick of hearing about it, and then and then you're right. You've got an appetite for like new stories or whatever. Like the the way we kind of consume news is not reflective at all of actually what's happening and actually the issues that yeah. kind of need attention and and funding basically. And actually, this is where I've seen the trend of. The, the, the podcast or the other avenues that people can talk um social media <clears throat> blogs you know there are different ways that you can do it now so you've got more of a voice and i think there definitely needs to be more support into those avenues and not just the traditional media mm -hmm. yeah absolutely 
Um, and how have you kind of been, speaking of which, how have you been kind of getting the word out about Lotus Flower and what you're doing? Um, so we've, I think because the, the way the Lotus Flower has formed and the way we've kind of set everything up, the stories of where it started, we've been quite lucky to get quite a lot of attraction. Um, I think for me, the next thing is to make sure that the authentic stories of the women and girls being told um, and people are seeing what we're actually doing because we are very small, but we're doing so much. Um, we meet some organisations sometimes and they are absolutely shocked that we're doing so much with such a small team and small funding. Um, but I think for me, from the start, even when I started it, I knew that I'd have to keep things going to build a track record and make sure that everything's needed and all the services are needed, the projects are needed, and we're actually making real impact for me to go, okay, we've done that for two years, there's definitely a massive need for this, we've got the proof to show it, we've got the processes in place, and now we can actually go out and start asking for funding quite a lot. Um, our biggest need is funding at the moment so we're going to be on a big push next year in terms of funding and raising awareness as well um we need to up our social media game definitely <laughs> um but i think we've been quite lucky we've had quite a lot of media interest in what we do and i hope that continues and it's yeah. not going to be something that's just you know for one headline only yeah no totally um yeah, that's exciting. And because how many people do you work with now? Do you have a, you have a bit of a team now? We're growing. So at the start, it was just me, and then we had a regional manager, and then we had a full team on the ground. And our team on the ground expands according to projects. So we have trainers, social coordinators. I think there's about ten on the t on the ground now. Um, and then here we have one helping with projects and monitoring, and then. Um, events and partnerships so two three we've grown to five here mm -hmm. but i mean everyone's more or less on voluntary basis yeah and mm. i would love to get them you know employed properly because the work that we do here from the court office helps support and sustain everything on the ground and actually because i've consulted over the years with bigger charities i do genuinely believe that you can do it with a small core team Mm. I've seen so much wastage in bigger charities. I just think, right. why have you hired 10 people to do one person's job? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Whereas where kind of one person can do 10 people. But everyone's so passionate and they love what they do that you can keep that going with that love and passion. So I think we're trying to fundraise now to sustain our projects on the ground, but also to sustain the small core team that we've got that is essential to keep things growing. And to bring in that funding for future projects as well. And do you stay in touch a lot with the with the women who've been through the programme and been through the... Yeah, of... we're very close to them. I mean, it's really... We've had guests or visits to the projects. And one thing they've noticed is how close we are to the women. Um, because these centres are inside the camps, these women live inside the camps, so it's all they have access to we become really close to them. So my regional manager will almost know all of them. And that's how we try and keep it. I don't want it to be a nameless enterprise where you just have people going into your training programmes and you don't know them because that's that's not what I want. I do mm. want it to be very personal. We're, we're in the heart of the community for a reason. Mm -hmm. And I believe that once you 
gained that level of trust it's how you help them bring about change as well mm. and to the wider community like for example if we want to extend our projects on early based marriage we've already got the women and girls coming to our centers to our sessions but they're asking us yeah, but you need to go to the men and right. the leaders mm-hmm. so now we need to think okay how do we go to the men and the leaders and so mm-hmm. you need to be really close to the community to do stuff like that yeah it's very interesting and um i suppose we've already talked a little bit about um the kind of the importance of supporting women and girls specifically but that was going to be one of my questions is do you think there's a space for for supporting men and for do you think it's do you think it's necessary or do you think it's it's part of like what you I want think, to do i think it's crucial that you involve boys and men i mean especially as someone who's got a 16 year old boy i think it's definitely crucial the only thing that i recognize is i have a deep understanding of cultural needs and cultural sensitivities I can't go in there and expect the men and boys to change overnight because that's not how that particular culture is. Mm -hmm. And so the way we do it is a softer approach where we go in and we help the women and girls only. It's a safe social space for women and girls only on purpose because in that cultural context, that's what works. And so when we are thinking about doing our project later on, it will involve bringing in boys and men we've had some projects peace building projects already with um young boys and young girls so it's working slowly and at the pace of that community um what i've noticed is you know you have women and rights organizations where sometimes they're ignored if you're just advocating for women's rights in that context in that culture um and i know that that is what happens so we've gone the opposite way and said actually we're just going to practically do stuff and practically show that we can do these things and then work softly into integrating into other areas. So in future, definitely, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's it depends on the project, depends on the region, it depends on the context. Um, our peace-building projects have definitely involved um, men and boys, and I think they will in future as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. Because I, I guess um, it's something I thought about a lot as well, but the... The idea that, um, you know, women's rights needs advancing or, you know, we need to do some work in order to have um, kind of gender equality. But women can't do that on their own. And, and sometimes it's true, like feminist work or women's right, rights work kind of tends to get like um, compartmentalised a little bit. Yeah. And it's like absolutely only going to happen really if there's kind of support from both sides to change and to and to move forward and to, and I guess to recognise as well on a on a wider level that yeah. it you know it's like um that it benefits everyone that gender equality completely. kind of can um, make a healthier society i think so general. completely and also like looking in that cultural context and figuring out who the leaders are mm. you know you know in the region that we work we know that religious leaders have a lot of power mm-hmm. yeah. so you need to figure out how you bring them in as well mm-hmm. because once you've brought them in it might bring in the boys and the mm-hmm. men mm-hmm. um so it's it's doing a proper analysis of what's needed in that context and in that region Mm -hmm. and for that culture. Um, But I do think you need boys and men. And there are supportive boys and men, so we can't... You know, we've come across amazing men in in the region that have helped us and want to push things forward. And so you embrace that and try and help it carry your cause forward. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
Um, I suppose it's it's interesting, um, though, working on kind of working with women and girls specifically, because I feel like in the last year or two, there's been a lot of um, a lot of focus on on women's issues, especially I think actually with the election of Donald Trump, I think it's kind of really and with a lot of the things like the Me Too scandal and things like that, I think people are kind of there was a there was a there was a time where sexism was seen to be a thing of the past, whereas I think we're kind of um it's becoming more and more recognised generally that that there is a long way to go. Mm-hmm. Um and so I guess it's it's do you think it's an interesting time now to be working on a project like this? I think there definitely seems to be or feels like there is some sort of women's awakening. <laughs> um so it's it's timely to be doing projects like this. I guess, you know, some bigger campaigns might not work directly for the causes that we're working with on the ground because the women might not be there at that level yet, but it still inspires them that there is a movement of women or there's a lot of focus on women. I think they do feel it. Um, I think collectively it gives you a, a strength to keep going and knowing that there is support around you um i think it's very much needed um but there's definitely some sort of women's collective awakening and it's trickling down to different parts of different regions and it's been taken and adopted in different ways i've seen a massive massive change in women and girls rights um in kurdistan northern iraq from when i was a teenager to now you know, things have progressed so, so much. There's a lot that still needs to be done, but a lot has changed as well. Um, and I think access to social media, because they've, they've all got access to social media, so seeing these world campaigns does actually help. Um, it, it it gives them the support knowing that they're not alone. Um, so, yeah. That's amazing. That's I really like the way you you phrase that. Actually, women's awakening. It's kind of it feels yeah, like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> more of that, please. Yeah. Um, I think this has been a really nice yeah. <laughs> conversation. Yeah, Excellent. I'd just like to finish then with um the questions that we always finish with. Um, first of all, how can people um support you specifically? Support Lotus Flower specifically, and what you're doing. I think right now where we are, um. We've definitely proved the work has impact. Um, We've reached over 3,000 women and girls in under two years. Um, We've got everything in place that is ready to take on partnerships. So we we desperately need funding to keep what we're doing going. I I would hate for it to die out, um, especially knowing that it's such a needed service. So funding is big, and I think funding can come in so many different ways. It could come from introductions to businesses who would want us to be a charity partner it could come from I don't know your child's school wanting us to be a charity partner it could come from you individually doing a run an event anything um as long as it's helping towards fundraising and to keep our projects going and they can anyone can get in touch with us through our website um which is www.thelotusflower.org um so the contact page gets through to us. If you've got any recommendations, we're on social media platforms with at the Lotus F because I can do flower. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Um, so yeah, I think at the moment it's definitely fundraising and it could be any opportunities for fundraising. It could be partnerships, businesses, it could be corporates. You know, whoever's listening would know how they can help and in what way. And any amount, be it just one person, an individual or a massive organisation still has a massive impact. Yeah, definitely. That's fantastic. I think that's a really important <laughs> part of it. Um, the second question is, is there anything that you've read or watched that's inspired what you've done that people can, can check out? Um, I read so much. It's so varied. Yeah. And it's different bits from different places i think if it's related directly to the lotus flower and you really want to see the impact that we've really really have there was a really moving um documentary short documentary that a social influencer mama b um she came out to see the projects and she led a boxing project but in that you've got a story of um one of the women and that story is heartbreaking, but it shows you the reality of actually what we're working with and who we're supporting. So you can find that on YouTube on the EB Family channel. Um, and I think the video is called I Left My Family for This. And it's got a picture of Mum B and boxing and stuff. But it's it's such a moving, moving clip. And that was a really emotional journey because... I don't want to give the spoiler away, but it talks about um, a seven-year-old girl that was taken and uh, raped and enslaved by ISIS for three years. Um, she's now 12. And so just just talking to the mum and realising that this has happened and actually this is the kind of women and girls that we're supporting brings it really back to life. Mm. Um, so, yeah. I think if it's related back to us, I'd recommend that one. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds incredible and not easy watching, but definitely no insightful into what's actually happening. Yeah, massively. Um, last question then. Generally, um, thinking about people kind of getting involved and um helping be part of the change. How can people yeah. get involved? Well, what I, can I'm, people do to? I'm to... a great example of. Yes, you can. Because <laughs> I literally did this in my living room thinking that I could never do it. I mean, my adult story I haven't spoken about, but going from that kind of person to where I am now is massive. So that idea of, oh, whatever I do won't make a difference. No, you can make a massive difference. And it's just with that passion. I think the biggest advice I'd give is don't be scared. Like there's there's literally nothing to be scared of. You're not gonna fail. You most probably just learn from it. Um, start small. I think everyone looks at things and wants to start big, and that seems daunting. So my advice would be go back to lean project management start and start small, yeah. and you'll be surprised. You'll be surprised that once you've figured out why you're doing something, that doors will just naturally open. But I think the biggest thing is don't be scared. Mm. No, that's great advice. I think it applies on so many levels. Like even just finding things out, I think people can sometimes have a tunnel vision and not even want to know. But even just widening your perspectives and yeah, there's there's something that all of us probably feel very passionate about and can. Yeah, can I think that's what it on. is. I think you just find out what you're passionate about and why, 
and let that drive you and don't be too scared of the hows of how you're going to do something. I'd start with a small how, like mm-hmm. find a small way of doing something. You might be supporting that cause that you're passionate about and then you never know if you've got, you know, film photography skills, you might end up combining those skills with that cause. So it, it's very individual, but I think you have to ask those questions to yourself of what you're passionate about and why and how you can start small to make that first change and be conscious of, you know, we all have to earn a living. We all have to live and survive. And that's, you know, that's a big pressure for a lot of people that stops them from doing stuff. But you'd be surprised at how much you can do even if you're doing that. So just do your research and don't be scared and be patient. Yeah. <laughs> that's one thing, be patient. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much thank for sitting with me today. It's been like it's been incredible. It's been really thank interesting you. stories and um, and yeah, good luck with it all. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Future Heist is recorded and produced by me, Rena Neve Smith, with original music by Benjamin Tassi and artwork by Fleur Beck. Special thanks to Chloe Vasegi and Joshua Los Challens. You can follow us on Instagram at future underscore heist.